So last week, a group of us showed up at Islands Fresh Mex in Ogden. Who was at Ogden? Who was at Islands this week for Taco Tuesday? A lot of you, okay? A ton of us. I think there were like 40 people at Islands this week. Um, and we were mostly there for the tacos because tacos are amazing. That's why. And, and also because tacos are a dollar after five o'clock. This is not an endorsement uh, from Islands, but I will endorse Islands myself. Uh, but I, I talk about the tacos because a couple of us got talking about this. And maybe you've heard the joke about Mexican food, like the whole idea about everything that you order at a Mexican restaurant is, is essentially the same exact dish just folded differently. Have you heard this? So like you take, you take meat and cheese and like pico, you put it on a hard shell, you've got a hard taco. You take meat, cheese, pico, put it on a soft shell, you got a soft taco. You take that puppy, throw it on the flat griddle, it's a quesadilla. You take a big shell, roll it up, it's an enchilada. If you, if you burrito, if you put sauce on top, it's an enchilada. Or you take the entire thing apart and let the customer assemble it at their table, it's a fajita. And you can charge extra for it. And so it's a really good system that the Mexican restaurants have going on. And I'm, I'm not a hater. I'm all, I'm all for it. But I bring this up because today I think the concept of like recipes and ingredients and cooking is, is a great way of viewing what we're going to get into over the next few weeks as we start this new teaching series called Together We Are. And you see in our logo here, we've got this, you know, fingerprint, the idea of who are we as a people? I'm talking about the church at large, yes. I'm also talking about our, our local little family right here. People who would attend Venture Church regularly and call them your faith family. Like, who are we? What are we about? Together we are. And so for years, we've used this three-part goal. And maybe you've never heard this, and I've got to be honest and transparent here. As a leader, since we came back from shutdown, I haven't been great about like emphasizing these three things. So this is also me rebooting those three things, saying we've got to get back to the basics and what we're all about. We have three goals. Essentially, our three goals as a church community is that we will be God-chasing, grace-shaped, love agents. In fact, I want it to be so much part of our vernacular and our mentality that I want us to say it together. Will you say this? We are God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. That's our goal. And over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to dive into each one of these things and ask ourselves, what does it mean for us to actually do that in our lives? Someone who is a God-chaser is someone who is pursuing God with every part of their life. I like to think of it as the filter that you run all your decisions through. How do I spend my time? Who do I invest my life with? Uh, where do I spend my money? What are my passions? Those of you guys who are just getting started in college, like, why am I in college? Why do I want a career? Why do I need to declare a major? If everything can be funneled through the question of how does this help me pursue my God, you're a God chaser. And that's our goal. And so anyone who accepts Christ, I mean, I, I've, how many times have many of you stood around a swimming pool or the ocean with me and other people at our church and we're about to baptize somebody and we say, you know, I believe that Jesus is the Christ and the son of the living God. I want to make him the Lord of my life. And the last phrase we say is what? And I want to be a God chaser. And that's our goal. So that's the first part. And that's what we're getting into today. I want to look at these other two. What does it mean to be grace-shaped? We'll spend some time talking about that in a couple of weeks. But basically the world shapes you, doesn't it? Like your, your experiences and your upbringing and your lack or, or, or privilege, like whatever it is, shapes who you are. And we kind of all come to the room with this ball of clay that the world has shaped. And we're like, this is me. But what God says through Jesus Christ is like, no, you don't have to be defined by your past. In fact, you can, you can be comfortable being only defined by my grace and the future you have in me. So we want to be grace-shaped. And so that's about how we interact with each other in community. That's about how we just submit to God in our own lives. Say, okay, I don't have this figured out. And then the last part of it is the overflow. So if, if I'm God chasing and then I'm allowing myself to be grace shaped, then I should overflow into the world with his love as agents 
of his love. We are love agents. So we are God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. And this idea is not original to me or to Venture Church. Virtually every church throughout history should have the same basic goal. And a lot of churches have you know, drafted it different ways, but it, it all comes from some things that Jesus said. One in particular that I think about a lot is in Mark chapter 30, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 12, verse 30. This is what Jesus says. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And he says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. And so today, what I want to do is focus on that first one. What does it mean to be a God chaser. You with me? Let's do it. If you've got a Bible today, you're going to flip to the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at a story that you may or may not have read from the book of 2 Kings. And so if you need a Bible today, we've got free ones we give away either to borrow for the service or to keep. If you need a Bible, back on the shelf right by the door. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 16 to start with. And we're going to be looking at the life of a couple of people. 2 Kings is in the Old Testament of the Bible. And it specifically is like a history of the nation of Israel through the lens of the different kings that come. So this is the book of the kings. And so as a new leader comes, we see what that leader brought to the table and how the nation responded in, in, in his leadership. And we're going to look, I want to step before you today, two individuals, okay? I want to look at the life of both of them. One is a God chaser. In fact, he is maybe one of the, the greatest leaders to have ever lived. Uh, the other is a, is, is a scumbag. I mean, I just don't like this guy. In fact, he might've been one of the worst people to ever live. And that's not me judging him. That's literally what the Bible says about him. He was evil. Uh, and they actually were a father and son duo. Now our main character today is going to be the son. His name is Hezekiah. Anybody know Hezekiah? Hezekiah, really cool story. Don't talk about him a lot, but we probably should. His dad was a guy named Ahaz. He was not a good guy. The Bible describes him as evil. Second Kings chapter 16, we meet our first guy, Ahaz. Ahaz gets introduced like this. Second Kings 16, starting at verse 2, it says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. I know there's a handful of you in this morning who are probably between like 19 and 23. Can you imagine being uh, king or queen of a nation right now? You're like, I, I have a hard time waking up in time for work or class. Like, so I don't know if I could be king right now. He becomes king at 20 years old. And then he reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. Now, unlike David, his father, now this is more like his forefather. David wasn't his literal father. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire. We'll talk about that in a second. Engaging in detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites he offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places. We'll talk about the high places in just a minute. And on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. This is the introduction the Bible gives us to this guy, Ahaz. He's not a good guy. He's an evil character. This is a time in world history when the big dogs on the stage are a group of people called the Assyrians. They are an empire that's quickly spreading over the Near East and they are taking over everybody. And uh, they were a savage nation. And so they conquered everybody in a brutal fashion. They would murder anyone who stood in their way to make the point that this is that we're in charge. And then even the people that submitted to them, they would sometimes brutally abuse them and... Um, Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz, like many of the kings in the region, decided, I'm going to play it easy. I'm going to bow down to the Assyrians. I'm going to, I'm going to do what it takes to make them happy. And so one thing he did was he played, paid huge tribute 
that's taxes, basically, to the Assyrian king. Large tributes to the point where he actually starts to bankrupt the, the uh, royal treasury. Begins to bankrupt the temple treasury. Now, if you were here during the Minor Prophets series that we did this summer, uh, we talked a lot about this period of time where the Assyrians and then the Babylonians come and they basically overthrow the nation of Israel. One important thing to kind of note about this time period is that there had been some civil unrest between the nation of Israel and it had divided into like a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom known as Israel, the southern kingdom known as Judah. Ahaz was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and the capital of Judah was the city of Jerusalem. Very important place. And Ahaz begins to essentially spit in the eye of the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. By turning to the Assyrians, by paying tribute to Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, and then ultimately giving into the pagan worship of the nations around them, he does some other detestable things. Uh, he starts worshiping these Canaanite gods, and, and one of them was a, a god called Molech. Now, you might have saw in our passages that Ahaz was guilty of sacrificing his son to the flames. One way that you would worship Molech would be, this could get graphic. I'm going to keep it kind of PG-13, but just you can fill in the blanks if you're there. You would sacrifice your oldest child to Molech by burning them alive. That's all I'm going to say there. The cries of your child, the louder it was, ideally, that's the more Molech could hear you, and then they would make you great in battle. Now, we talked about Hezekiah. That's Ahaz's son, right? Well, Hezekiah is still alive in the story. So this is Hezekiah's older brother. And when you say it like that, it really becomes very personal. And this is what their dad had done to their family. Needless to say, they had daddy issues. And Hezekiah's family was not focused on honoring God. Furthermore, in service to the king of Assyria... Ahaz eventually destroys the temple of God. Not physically, it's still there. But he allows the, the pagan priests to come in and just take up residence there. And so instead of worshiping Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the God that Christians serve today, he begins allowing the priests from the other pagan gods to come in and serve at the temple. It's just, it's just terrible. It's evil. And the entire nation begins to follow suit. And it says that there are these high places and these hilltops. And so he's allowing the entire nation to then worship the gods of the Canaanites, some of them very demonic and powerful spirits, at what were called high places, building shrines to them, building idols to them, these poles that they would worship in the name of this fertility god, all these things that they would do. And this all happens under Ahaz's watch. Okay, I told you I'm going to set two people in front of you. There's Ahaz. Now here's the thing about Ahaz. I think that, yes, we see all that and we're like, man, that guy was really far from God. But I think the truth is that a lot of us, we fall into some of the same tra traps that he was falling into uh, a lot in our life. And, and I would liken it to maybe like, maybe you've done this. Maybe I've done this. You're driving down I-40. You might be going like 85 miles an hour. I'm saying I've seen, I heard people have done this, okay? You're going real fast, but then there's a highway patrolman like on the side, or maybe they're tucked around behind a bush, or they're like, you know what I'm talking about? What do you do when you see that trooper? Boop. Pop the brakes, boy, because he didn't see your car go. But, right, why? Because suddenly I'm reminded of some things. I'm reminded maybe, hopefully, it's dangerous to go that fast. The roads were designed a certain way, and you shouldn't drive that fast. You might be reminded it's illegal. 
You might also be reminded, like, if I get caught driving this fast, I might get in trouble, right? I get a ticket, or if I've had other tickets, it'll be even worse. My insurance is going to go up. It's not good, right? The truth is, I think that we often view God the way we view those police officers and highway patrolmen. That their entire purpose, that God's entire purpose is to hide out behind bushes and underneath, you know, picnic tables and just pop up. Ha! Gotcha! You were doing wrong. And we pop the brakes. You're like, oh, sorry. Right? Now, here's the reality. That is not what God's about at all. We serve a compassionate God of grace and forgiveness. Actually, God's desire for us is that we will know and be known by him. His desire for us is that we will worship him. His desire is to love us. So anytime he pops up in our life or we recognize that he's there, more likely, he's actually there to restore us. He wants us to give opportunities to pump the brakes, to slow it down, to be safer with our life. And the other reality is that God is not hiding behind bushes and trying to pop out and create speed traps in our life. The reality is he's always there. We just often have our eyes closed to him. And the slippery slope that led Israel and Ahaz to where they were is because they kept their eyes closed to the presence of God in their life. They didn't acknowledge his existence and his presence and his desires. And as a result, the whole nation just begins to fall away from him quickly. And God has made it very clear. We studied this a lot this summer that he's like, listen, I'm tired of this. And with Ahaz's kingship, basically, God has all but washed his hands of the Israelites. And the result of Ahaz's rebellion is devastating to the nation. Let's just look at a little update on the nation of Israel. This is in 2 Kings chapter 17, starting at verse 14, um, 17, 14. And this is just kind of what's happening in the nation now. As a result of his bad leadership and his evil heart, it says, but they, this is the nation of Israel, but they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had wanted them to keep. And they followed worthless idols and they themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them. Although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. Skip ahead to verse 20. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of the plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. And you've got to understand something about the nation of Israel. I mean, this is a nation that was literally founded by God. He gives them their law. He gives them their order. And they just turn a blind eye to him, spit in his face, and do their own thing. Because of Ahaz's ungodly leadership, after time and time and time again of God coming in and providing some leadership, providing some guidance, coming in, sending prophets, coming in, sending uh, priests, coming in with a message like, turn your heart back to me. God finally says, all right, I reject you. That's hard. And then something happens, um, something really great. And it's weird to say it this way, but this is, this is the great thing that happened. Uh, Ahaz dies. Now, it's not great that he died. Um, but maybe you've been in that boat, like, man, whew, things are easier now that somebody's going, right? And that is the truth with what happened with the nation of Israel. He dies, and his son, Hezekiah, our second character, hits the stage as king. Now, let's introduce ourselves to Hezekiah first. This is in 2 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 1, 2 Kings 18. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, remember that's the northern kingdom, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, the southern kingdom, began to reign. Verse 3. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. I want to read that again. 
He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done, his forefathers, his King David. He removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones. He cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made for them. This is an interesting little tidbit that you kind of don't hear about until right here. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. So they had even idolized this little relic from when Moses was alive. That was their leader generations earlier. And Hezekiah comes in and says, no, 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 no. Break, cut down, destroy, kick out. You ever heard something that we call the vicious cycle? So like uh, in, in, in my life and like what I do daily, I'm often meeting people for the first time and I'm constantly hearing, you know, your life stories and people's stories. And I find that a lot of people come from a lot of brokenness. And it's sad and it's true. And, and the reality is we tend to become what we've been shown. And so as much as maybe when you were growing up, you're like, I am never doing what my dad did. I'm never doing what my mom did. And then you wake up and you're 35 and you open your mouth to speak to your kids and your father falls out of your mouth. And you're like, oh my goodness, there he is. I have become him, right? And so maybe that's been a reality to you. And so that can be a good thing. You might have had really good upbringing and it might have been really good. Or it can be a bad thing. And so the vicious cycle is when it's a bad thing. And when you've been brought up in abuse or brokenness or addiction or whatever it is and, and, and the household doesn't work well. And then so what do you take with you when you leave the home all of that abuse and addiction and brokenness and maybe evil and unrighteousness if that was part of the upbringing and what do you what do you do you take that with you everywhere you go and you build a new family and it's a cycle and so many many people work very very hard and pay therapists a lot of money and have to do a lot of things to try to break that vicious cycle but every now and then there's a resilient person like hezekiah who says no My dad did it this way, but guys, we're not doing it this way. Look what it's done to our nation. Look what it's done to our position in the world. Look what it's done in how we respond to our God. And so Hezekiah tears down the high places. He cuts down the fertility poles of Asherah. He cleans the temple of all the filth. He reinstates the priest into the temple, which is a big part of what he does. He actually goes back and reestablishes a bunch of the um, festivals and things that the Jewish people were told to do by Moses, things like Passover and stuff like that. They had not been doing those things. He's like, guys, you know why things are falling apart? Because we're not doing things the way God told us to do them. And so he says, no. He breaks the vicious cycle and he starts all over. I'll show you eight or nine years old and I grew up in uh, Wilson, North Carolina and uh, the church I was at was a, was a small, essentially a rural church and uh, I love my home church and there was this uh, moment every week, we used to have a Sunday school class uh, and, and then church and before Sunday school there was a moment where there was kind of, they call them the opening exercises does anybody remember opening exercises? I think it's the tradition from a lot of churches and somebody would get up and you know, we would sing happy birthday to somebody or we would sing a song but there was always this this moment where somebody would step up and give like a devotional thought and there was this one guy who would often give these devotional thoughts and I love this guy to this day I love this guy uh he's just a he's he's just a country fella and like just real talks real simple real simple concepts he's got a strong eastern North Carolina accent I'll never forget my dad was is and was the preacher at that church and I love my dad he's a great teacher and I remember a few things that he preached in my life but uh Really, one of the things that jumped out to me the most and it stuck with me the longest is this little devotion that this guy gave in like 30 seconds at the opening, uh, opening ceremonies or whatever at the um, at church that week. And this is what the guy says. He says, you know, my washing machine was acting up this week. Just won't work and couldn't figure it out. So I took her apart. And I get in there and I'm like, what's going on with this thing? And you know what I found? Lo and behold, right there stuck in the mechanism was a sock. 
I said, well, that won't do. So I reach in, I grab that stock, and I pull it out. And guess what? She works like a dream. That was his sermon. And he said, you know what? Every now and then we need to open it up, take a look inside, see what's clogging up the mechanism, and pull it out. And he just kept saying it. You got to pull the sock out. You got to pull the sock out. You got to pull the sock out. What Hezekiah sees is that there's, there's a problem in the nation of Israel with their holiness, with their justice, with their righteousness. And he just pulled the sock out. Well, there's your problem. <laughs> Let's get it right. And I wonder what might be jammed up in your life right now. I think we readily accept so many things into our soul that destroy us. The French philosopher Pascal said, there's a God-shaped hole in every one of us that only God can fill. And I don't know if that is physiologically true, because that would be a big gaping hole. <laughs> Mentally and spiritually, I think there's a part of us, and that's what drives so many of us to do what we're doing right now, to wake up on your day off and come sit in a gymnasium and like sing some songs and open our Bibles, because there's a journey that we're on, and we want to fill that void in our life with something that's... It's made for the presence of God, but we fill it with so many other things. Israel was filling it with false gods, the false sense of security that came from becoming a vassal nation of the Assyrians. But we do it by finding security in our job and how much money we have in our bank account. We do it by, we put a lot on our families. Family's the most important thing in my life. Guess what? Your families are not strong enough to deal with all your spiritual burden. They're great. We really need to have them in our life. We, you know what we do? We, we put that on our hobbies and our careers and our dreams and our aspirations. We're like, if only I could find the right thing in my life, I would be happy. The anxiety would go away. The fear and the depression would go away. The uncertainty would go away. And it's like, God's like, no, like I am here. I'm not hiding in the bushes. I'm here for you to encounter. You don't have to know everything about me, but what I want you to do is to begin to pursue me we have got to be God chasers and when we begin to pursue God with every part of our life we begin to fill that void we begin to take the sock out and things start working again Jesus taught seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then he says the things that you need will be added to you you'll be all right but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no more important than these. That's the mechanism. That's how God created you and designed you to live. Hezekiah made that proclamation for himself and he made it for his people. And if we look at 2 Kings chapter 19, starting at verse 5, we see that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. It says, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He gets, he gets the distinction of being the greatest king of uh, the Old Testament. That's pretty cool. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Hezekiah is my favorite person in the Bible. 
behind Jesus. Jesus gets number one. And then Hezekiah, because of his boldness. I mean, how often, given a position of influence like that, where there are literally hundreds of thousands of people looking at you, do you say, we're going to change it all. (laughs) We're just going to change it all. You're all doing it wrong. I'll go first. And that was Hezekiah's life. Now, we're not going to read, I wish I could read you the rest of Hezekiah's story. It's fascinating. I'm going to encourage you to go read it. It's in the book of 2 Kings, chapters 18 through 20, I think. Also in the book of 2 Chronicles, I said verses, I meant chapters. Chapters 18 through 20, and then 2 Chronicles, chapters 28 through 32, or Google. Where do I read about Hezekiah? Like, do that. He's also talked about in the book of Isaiah. He's talked about in Proverbs. But his story is so reassuring. And this is why. If you read his whole story, what you realize is he wasn't perfect. He didn't always get it wrong. In fact, he had some pretty big blunders. He had one that God was very upset about. But all throughout the way, it wasn't about him being perfect. It was about him pursuing the presence of God in all of his decisions. It transformed Hezekiah. Who he was, how God used him, and then ultimately how the entire nation of people responded. So as a people, as the church, capital C, As the local body that we are, the Venture Church family, we must be God chasers in everything that we do. There's nothing that we can build. There's nothing that we can do or conquer or learn or plan that can even compare to the greatness of the creator of our soul, the sustainer of our life, God the Father. What would it look like if each one of us said, no, no more? I'm breaking the vicious cycle. We're going to tear down the high places. We're going to destroy the shrines. We're going to return God's temple to a place of honor. By the way, in our era that we live in now, the temple of God is your own body. He comes and lives with you and in you and around you. And to restore its place of dignity to be a temple of the Lord God. We're we're going to return that. We're going to place God at the center of our decisions and use him as a filter for all the things that we do. We're going to Pull the sock out. What would it look like if each one of us began to do that in our lives? What are the things that stand between you and your God? Only you know. And here's the beauty. The church, the kingdom of God, exists so that we can work on fixing that together. Because you're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You don't have enough answers. In fact... It has very little to do with the answers anybody has. As much as it is about repenting, pointing my heart to who God is, and trying to honor him with my life. That's what it means to be a God chaser. And that's what we're going to seek together. Now, near the end of Hezekiah's reign, the Assyrians are getting pretty ruthless, and they're coming in, and they're like, they're really upset because Hezekiah quit paying the tribute that his dad started paying, and they keep, like, sending the tax bill, and the IRS comes by like, hey, you're a little bit late on your payments. And eventually, Sennacherib, the king, is like, I've had it. So he sends 185,000 soldiers to the front gates of Jerusalem. And he says, okay, you're not going to pay it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill you all. We're going to destroy your city, and we're going to make sure that nobody else makes the mistake of thinking that they can go above and beyond us. And so they come uh, to the front gate with this. There's this message with a letter and the letter goes to Hezekiah and the messenger basically says we are here to destroy you unless you completely turn over to us right now bow down to Sennacherib the king of Assyria bow down to Assyria pay your tribute and become a vassal nation again now 
I can't put myself in Hezekiah's shoes right there. 185,000, not only armed soldiers, but viciously armed soldiers. These are people who in battle would sometimes take children by their ankles and swing them around until brutal things happen. This is how the Assyrians did battle. Okay, It wasn't like name-calling and pushing in the park. And so Hezekiah knows that if 185 soldiers are going to eventually win. In fact, they had set up uh, around the perimeter so that nothing could go in, nothing could come out. It was a siege. They'll starve to death or thirst to death or give up. But Hezekiah doesn't freak out. He doesn't bow down. Instead, he takes that letter, physically the letter, into the temple of God. And it says he spreads it on the floor. And he just prays over it. Now, you might think that, like, that's old-fashioned or something your grandma or great-grandma would have done. You're like, oh, that's superstitious. But, man, you see it so often in the Bible. Whatever's giving you trouble, you just put your hands on it and you pray. <laughs> you say, Lord, I don't know what happens behind the scenes and what you're doing right now. But, Lord, I just need you right now. I want to read Hezekiah's prayer. This is in... Um, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 15. It says, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven and the earth. Give ear, Lord. Hear, open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib. He has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. But now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. And I would love to read the next few chapters to you, but let me just tell you what happens in a nutshell. God does a miracle. And that night, something happens out in the Assyrian camp. Something happens that causes about half of them to die. And they wake up and they're freaked out. And they just leave. <laughs> Not a single Judean soldier had to lift a sword. In fact, it's one of the uh, things that caused a lot of people to have faith in the authenticity of the Bible. Archaeologists thousands of years later, I guess, find uh, this tablet that was part of Sennacherib's like, um, history. And so Sennacherib has this long history of all of his conquests. He's like, and then we went into this place and we did this to them and we destroyed them and we left. And we went to this place and we destroyed them and we left. And we went to this place and we destroyed them and we left. This is found etched in stone, buried in the ground somewhere. Some archaeologists found it. And then it talks about the conquest of Israel. And it says, we went to Israel and then we left. So it says, Google it. They just left. That is the power of being a God chaser. Let me just tell you, caveat. It doesn't always go that way. God doesn't always come down and take care of all of your problems for you. Sometimes you still get sick. Sometimes you still face struggles. But man, I'm telling you what. Our God, with that power, that love, and that compassion, that's who I'm going to serve. In the words of Joshua from the book of Joshua, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And our church family, guys, that's the God that we serve. What is it that you need to lay down? 
Maybe you've got doubts and fears and questions. You know what? That's completely okay. He already knows the doubts and fears and questions. It doesn't bother him at all. Maybe you feel like it's, you've got a long way to go before you could call yourself a God chaser. Can I just give you a little encouragement? You're probably a lot farther along than you realize. I've got some, uh, some evidence for you. You're here right now. You came to this moment right now. That's a big step. There are probably moments in your life where you never thought you would be right here right now considering being a God chaser. So don't, don't cut yourself short. And the big deal is that it isn't about you anyway. God's grace can come in no matter where you are. We're going to talk about being grace-shaped later. And he can clean you right up and give you so much purpose. God wants us to chase after him with our, our own lives. And this is the most important thing. In that chase, in that pursuit, guess who took the first step? God. It might even be better said that God is pursuing us. He's chasing after you. So much so that he left the splendors of heaven and came down to earth as a human being. We call that human being Jesus, God in the flesh. He lived the perfect life just to show us how and to make himself the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He dies on the cross. If you don't know this whole story, stick around. We talk about it all the time, okay? I don't want to rush past it because it's literally the most important story ever. He raises from the dead. Why? To show us the resurrection he can give each one of us. And he invites us to join him in that resurrection. Now, now, not later. We don't become a Christian so that you can go to heaven when you die. That's actually not even the goal of being a Christian. It's a huge fringe benefit. But so that you can be active in the kingdom of God now. Redeemed and active and chasing God with your life. What do you need to do? Well, the first thing we've got to do is tear down the high places. You've got to pull the sock out. What is it that's standing directly in the way? And only you know what that is. The second thing you might need to do is lay down the letter. Like take whatever it is, the struggle, the fear, the pain, and just lay it before him. And begin to talk to your God about it. He loves you. He wants to hear from you. If you don't know how to do that, get somebody in the room here today. Be like, hey, I need to pray about something. Can you help me with that? I asked for some prayer this morning. Lay it down. Lay it on the temple floor. <laughs> talk to God about it. Together we are. God chasers. When I think about all the different ways you can fold a taco, <laughs> I think it's really cool that that's kind of who the kingdom of God is. And we're folded in all kinds of different ways. Talked about being shaped by the world. But the goal is that we work on the ingredients that make us God chasers. In fact, I've, I've said before, I've heard it said before too, that like what you pour in is what pours out. And so as you go through your daily walk, ask yourself, what am I putting in? What are the ingredients? Let God fold that thing however he wants to. Enchilada, burrito, taco salad, like what, I don't know, the analogy. But that's part of being here. And so I've got a challenge for us this week. And it's a very simple challenge. I, I like to give us a, a tangible, real challenge to do. And this was simple. Honestly, you could all do it even if you forget all week you can do this. Okay, here's my challenge. I want you to come to church. And I want you to be in this room with us for the next four weeks. Four times, a month of Sundays, okay? Next Sunday, uh, my brother Jason, some of you know him, some of you have never met him. He's going to be preaching. I'm pretty pumped about that. Um, he's going to be in town, and so I'm going to snag him to preach because that's what preachers do. Um, and uh, he's going to be talking about what we as a church can do. It's going to be really, really cool to see him be encouraged by that. The next week, we'll be talking about what does it mean to be a God, uh, grace-shaped 
And then we'll talk about what it means to be a love agent the following week. And then, if I'm doing the counting right, my brother, grace-shaped love agent, the fourth week, we're actually going to take a week off in here. We're actually not going to have service here in the gym. And we're going to do a Serve Together Sunday. We do this once a year. We just go into the community on Sunday morning, and we're like, let's be about it. Let's practice. And so we've got a couple projects we're lining up. We're going to give you some opportunities to sign up for that kind of stuff. Next week, I'm going to give you, or two weeks from now, I'm going to give you a more tangible way that you can grow in this thing. But this is a challenge. Come back next week. Make plans for the four weeks. Did you know, like, on, on a national average, like, people are considering themselves regular church attenders if they come once every six weeks? And I'm going to be real honest. That ain't regular, Okay. And that's not, that's not how we as a community stay tight. And that's not how we can be fully invested with one another. And so this is not a guilt trip. This is an encouragement. If someone's like, hey, I want to get in shape. It's like, I think you should exercise every day. I'm going to exercise like once every six days. Is that good? I'll make this a regular part of your life. That's the challenge. Together we are God chasers. Let me pray for you this morning.